Eyes. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Patricia A. Riley of Jasper County presiding with the Honorable Margaret G. Robb of Tippecanoe County and the Honorable Rudolph R. Pyle III of Madison County. You may be seated. Thank you, Ms. Van Winkle. Appreciate it. Good morning. Nice to see all of you. And we have counsel with us here. We have appellant Eric Grigorski. Grigor. Tell me how to say it. Grigorski. Grigorski. That's right. Okay, Grigorski. And counsel for Appley is Dalen Welliver. Yes, Thank you very much. You may begin. May it please the court, I've reserved eight minutes for rebuttal. Uh, appellant in this matter has presented two issues for review by the court, the first of which is that the state of Indiana did not prevent, present sufficient evidence at the trial to rebut the defendant's claim of self-defense, and that the sentence imposed in this matter was inappropriate. I'll expand on both issues. The state of Indiana allows for a, uh, an individual to assert a claim of self-defense to justify what would otherwise be considered a criminal act. In order to prevail on a claim of self-defense, a defendant must show that he was in a place where he had a right to be, that he did not act uh, unjustly, and that he was in reasonable fear uh, of bodily harm. Mr. Kukorsi, let me ask you a question. You've given us the elements of self-defense and the state um, doesn't believe, but believes that it negated one of those um, elements. Why do you believe their allegation of, of um, negating an element is not accurate and the evidence in favor of each one of those? Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Specifically in this case, uh, the opponent, uh, William Mueller, had previously been the victim uh, of two separate shooting incidents. He had been the victim of a home invasion uh, in which he was with his grandmother. He was shot in that incident. He Excuse me, is this in the record? Uh, yes, Judge. Okay, thank you. Continue. Uh, he was shot in that incident. He lost a finger. He was uh, separately shot in another incident prior to the case that we're here for today. He was shot twice in the head, once in the front, once in the back. Uh, he still has a bullet lodged in his skull uh, from that matter. Um, and then we, we get to the uh, the case for which we're here today. Did he have any prior involvement with, with this uh, 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 victim? Uh, he and the victim knew each other, yes, Judge. But nothing uh, as a beating or a gun play or anything like that? No, Your Honor. Okay. On March 6, 2020, uh, the appellant William Mueller and another individual, Dennis Vincent, were involved in essentially a struggle that took place on a public street, Perkham Street in Kokomo, uh, Indiana. The, the appellant, uh, Mr. Mueller, was in a place where he had a right to be uh, out in public. Um, he acted in that manner. Yes. Let's go back. He, he was in a place he had a right to be. He had gone to uh, his home first, right? Uh, he had went to Mr. Vincent's apartment, correct. Right. And so uh, did Mr. Vincent let him in his house? I don't believe Mr. Vincent let him in. I believe another individual let him in as Mr. Vincent was not there at the time and he was waiting for Mr. Vincent to return. Okay, and how did they then get to the street? Uh, there was a brief discussion inside the apartment. 
Mr. Vincent told Mueller that he did not want to talk around the presence of others and they proceeded out into the street. So Mr. Mueller would have invited him out to the street to talk? Uh, I believe from the record, Mr. Vincent invited him out to, street, to the street as, as he stated he did not want to talk around others. Okay. While in the street, uh, there was a struggle, uh, a gun that was brought by Mr. Vincent. Uh, Miller eventually gets control of the weapon, um, shoots Mr. Vincent four times, and Mr. Vincent, as a result of that shooting, was deceased. Is it relevant where he was shot? record shows he was shot twice in the back and then twice in the back of the head so one of the elements you would have to prove is that he acted without fault why can't the jury take into account as it apparently did that he was shot twice in the back and twice in the back of the head uh, and say well that's not self-defense yes your honor um, keeping in mind that the the standard at the trial level is not what a reasonable person would do it's what a person reasonably believes mr. Mueller had been shot previously twice prior to uh, mr. Vincent removing the gun from his well, jacket is, pocket isn't it a subjective standard and an objective standard what is reasonable so it's not just what mr. Mueller thought was reasonable it's what a reasonable person would think uh, upon review it's it's what a reasonable person but at the trial level the jury instruction is not for a reasonable person it's what a person would reason reasonably believe um, and that that jury instruction uh, is in the record uh, and, and was read to the the jury prior to uh, verdict the can you tell me why that's what's the distinction you're trying to make there? the distinction that I'm trying to make is that mr. Mueller is at the time was not a reasonable person like you or I may have been. He had been shot twice. Um, he still had a bullet lodged in his head. He had just been told by Mr. Vincent that you're not going to like this as he's pulling out a firearm. And he's in reasonable fear that it's going to happen to him again a third time. Uh, okay. Did Mr. Vincent have any weapons? The, the record's unclear if he had other weapons, but the testimony on the record is that he brought the weapon to the altercation. I think what Judge Pyle is, is zeroing in on is that whether it's, whether an objective standard of any reasonable person or even a subjective um, standard of this person, um, shooting someone multiple times in the back um, why do you think that does not negate the issue of without fault? Um, one could, I assume the jury could have believed the person was running away, was not in a position to harm him, so therefore he didn't have fear anymore. Tell me why the, the location of where he was shot does not negate your argument. Thank you, Judge. Uh, I believe it's because of Mr. Mueller's history. Uh, he, he had been in two shootings, he had lost a finger, he had been shot in the head. So I, I believe, given those experiences that he had had prior to this, this incident, um, would have led him to believe that he was about to be shot a third time. How, how long did this, did we know how long this altercation took place? I mean, how, how soon after this altercation started, was he shot, um, you know, did it go on for a while? Um, do we know any more about the timeline of this? The record's not clear about the exact timeline. It, it seems to be a, a, a 
a quick struggle. Mm -hmm. And the shooting seems to have taken place uh, almost immediately after the presence of the, of the firearm. Were they still, I mean, was there any evidence that the victim was trying to leave? I mean, do we know any more about the circumstances? I mean, did the victim just turn and he got shot? Did it distance? Do we know any more of the facts of the fight itself? Just that they were in close proximity when, when Mr. Vincent uh, pulled the gun out from his jacket pocket. Uh, Miller grabbed for the gun, the struggle ensued, and the shooting took place shortly thereafter. But to have a self-defense, you have to have, you can't take a knife to a gunfight, that sort of thing. So why did Mr. Miller believe that Mr. Vincent had a weapon? Well, he, belie he believed he had a weapon. Uh, the reason he went to the apartment that day, uh, Vincent had his shotgun. Um, he wanted to retrieve the shotgun. Vincent told him, I don't have it here, it's down the street, which is why they proceeded into the street. Um, and Did something happen in the street where Miller thought that Vincent had a weapon? Vincent, Vincent started to put on a sock hat and some glasses and in a low voice told Miller that you're not going to like this. Uh, essentially stated he didn't have the gun and then the shotgun and then he pulled the handgun out of his jacket pocket and then the struggle ensued immediately thereafter. So Mr. Vincent did have a gun? From the record that's what happened yes judge. The statute on use of force uses the term reasonable belief. Our Supreme Court in 2007 and this court a couple of years later has said that that language in the statute requires both a subjective and an objective component. Do you agree? I would agree, and I, I believe in this matter, um, the subjective component is what, what Mr. Mueller was thinking at the time. Right, okay, and, and that's fine. That's, it is. Subjective means what he believed. Yes. He reasonably believed he thought he was about to get shot. Talk to me now about the objective component. He was shot four times in the back. Correct. Isn't the jury free to say, we don't believe a person gets shot four times in the back, that's, that that's reasonable belief of fear. It shows a person maybe running away or is turned around, no longer a threat. Show me why I, I would be wrong in concluding that or why the jury would have been wrong in concluding that. Yes, Judge. Uh, Given the, given the immediate conflict that was taking place on the street uh, with the gun, um, given the, uh, Mr. Mueller's uh, prior experience of being shot multiple times in multiple incidents, the number of times that Mueller shot Vincent, um, he, he believed he needed to use deadly force in order to preserve his own life. Um, the next issue uh, before the court today is the matter of the sentence. Following the conclusion of the trial, Mueller was sentenced to the advisory term of 55 years. For the benefit of our students here today, describe just briefly what the sentence range would be for murder and what the advisory sentence and what that means. Thank you, Judge. The uh, sentencing range for the penalty of murder is between 45 years and 65 years. The uh, advisory sentence, which is right in the middle at 55 years, um, the court is to apply in the event they find aggravating and mitigating circumstances to be equal, which is what happened in this matter. Uh, Mr. Mueller was sentenced to 55 years, all of which was ordered executed in the Department of Correction. Um, no time 
was suspended to probation, community correction, or any other kind of placement. In the sentencing statement, uh, the trial court relied upon the pre-sentence investigation report provided by the probation department. Um, that pre-sentence investigation report mischaracterizes the uh, criminal history of Mr. Mueller. Prior to this incident in March of 2020, when he was 26 years old, he had no criminal history. Uh, he had a couple of contacts with the criminal justice system as a juvenile for uh, hunting and fishing regulation and for uh, a battery that was he was warned and released. The probation department argued that that's enough to say that he's a moderate risk to reoffend for criminal history. He was also characterized as a high risk to reoffend for education, employment, and financial. He graduated from Kokomo High School. He had a welding certificate, and he was largely unemployed for the two years prior to sentencing because he was incarcerated. What what impact do you think um, had on on the aggravating circumstances that he had multiple incidences when he had been incarcerated for violating facility rules, destruction of county property, things that happened at a time when you would think he would want to be on his really good behavior? Your Honor, my time has expired. May I yes, answer, answer that question? That. The uh, Pre-sentence investigation report also talks about eight incident reports uh, uh, comprising 16 pages. The, the incident reports, the worst from which I can tell is that he spilled mop water on the floor and that he used a, or he broke a razor that was county property because he wanted to shave his head. Um, two of the eight incidents he was actually found not guilty for. Um, one of those incidents, he asked permission to come out of his cell after his cellmate had punched him in the mouth. He was found to be not guilty. In another incident, he stood up for an inmate who was being bullied. Um, and then that inmate, the bullying inmate, beat him up. He had blood all over his face. He was also found to be not guilty for that incident as well. So four pages of the... a magnet for... <laughs> four pages of the 16 pages... Uh, Mr. Mueller was found to be not guilty or not responsible for. The others, he slept through count, he put a sticker on an intercom, uh, twice he didn't have his wristband on. He's, he's not getting in fights at the jail, he's not beating other inmates up, he's been the victim of two beatings while at the jail. Thank you very Thank much. You. Uh -huh. May it please the court. When the defendant admitted that he shot and killed Dennis Vincent, the jury was left with a single question. Was it self-defense? After the jury heard that the defendant had been upset with Vincent and waited for him at his house, after they heard that all of the shots he fired into Vincent's body were going from back to front, and after they heard that he fled the scene and attempted to hide the murder weapon in the toilet tank of his apartment, the jury answered that question. If we didn't have him running away and doing the other things, um, I know it's hard to ignore all of that, but if we're taking just the shooting, we've asked um, the appellant a lot of questions about the circumstances of the fight. Do we know anything about the the trajectory, I mean, you know, was he trying to leave or did it all happen as part of a scuffle? Um, do we know anything about the very specifics of, of, the, disagree of the fight, the altercation? Uh, uh, thank you, Your Honor. There, there was n no video or anything like right. that introduced. 
Uh, so we have the, the actual, the physical or the forensic evidence, which I'll talk about. The only other evidence we have is the defendant's story. Now, but, I mean, I, do we know like how close it was? I mean, he, I would assume that the, the weapon um, analysis could say whether it was, you know, shot at a foot or two inches or, you know, three yards. They were not able to determine that in this case because of the clothing and there must have been at least enough distance that there wasn't any stippling or powder okay. burns on the on the clothing uh, what we do know about the the wounds uh two of them of course were to the back and came out the chest and so they were slightly up to down and coming through one pierced his lung the other pierced his lung and aorta and came out one was directly into the back of the his head, and that bullet was recovered from the front of his skull. The fourth one did go back to front, but it actually entered from the top of his, kind of top or side of his skull, and came forward and out through his mouth, and that's why they discovered two of his teeth on the street. Can we assume that if there were no powder burns or anything on the clothing, that it was of, it wasn't close, I mean, it wasn't like in the midst of the scuffle where someone has the gun and it, it, it goes off. I mean, there had to have been some distance then. At least a little bit. Okay. Uh, depending on the bit? experts that you talk about, um, oftentimes powder burns are found within like a few inches oh, and there are different okay. kind of degrees of that so with firearms. So it's Correct. Okay. Um, I would say that, um, I know your honors were asking about who had the weapon or that kind of thing. The only evidence that Vincent produced the weapon was the defendant. It was his story. Well, was it his gun? Was it Vincent's gun? There was never any ownership of a gun established. There were no documents or receipts or, you know, somebody going to a gun store, a, a Nick's check or anything like that. And, this, and the jury was free to disregard the defendant's testimony as not credible. At different points throughout the defendant's testimony, when he was cross-examined by the state, he could not describe how those wounds got there. When the, when the prosecutor confronted him with, well, he was shot from behind, the defendant's first reaction was, oh, no, no, he's not, and he tried to deny the physical evidence. Shortly after that, as he continued to be pressed on that issue, you know, how can you explain these wounds in light of what you've just told us? Because he tried to describe a scuffle where they're facing each other, essentially trying to each grab the gun. He then reverted to saying, well, I, I don't remember, or I can't say how that happened. And the jury at that point was free to say, this is inconsistent with the forensic evidence. And the jury was free to disregard his testimony that, that Vincent was even the one who produced the gun if they didn't want to believe that. I asked your colleague about both the subjective and objective components of what reasonable belief has to mean. And your colleague suggested that it's highly relevant, the history that Mr. Mueller went through in prior assaults and prior or being shot several times. Can you talk a little bit about why, why that isn't as important as the jury found. You know, a person being shot, why, it would seem to me that that would be reasonable. The subjective component would be satisfied. Um, what about the objective component? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, Your Honor, thank you. Um, Indiana kind of requires both, both of those. So um, sure, maybe he subjectively had that viewpoint, 
but it also requires the objective as your honour's noted and so um, whether or not he subjectively believed that is not a dispositive issue if the jury found that that was not objectively reasonable um, so first off the jury could have done that and we have to remember that this his assertion that he reasonably believed that he needed to use this force was premised on his testimony that Vincent produced a gun. But even if he did reasonably believe, must he meet both standards? It's not an either or. Yes, yeah, yes. So he even has if to meet he both. did truly believe, based on his um, prior um, happening, uh, it would it might not be sufficient. That's correct, Your Honor. And in this case, I would say, uh, even though the jury was free to totally disbelieve his story about Vincent pulling the gun, even if the jury had thought part of that was true, the fact that he shot him four times from behind would also be an unreasonable amount of force. The pathologist testified that any one of those shots would have been fatal, and yet he shot him over and over and over again. Both of, both of the shots to the head, the pathologist testified, would have most likely rendered him unconscious as soon as it happened. Um, and, and I believe that the, the case law in Indiana has supported a finding of unreasonable force under facts like this where they've been shot multiple times and especially from behind like this. So there was no evidence that Mr. Vincent's gun had been fired? Um, which gun? I'm sorry, Mr. which... Vincent's you said he had a gun with him, right? Well, only only the defendant testified that he had a gun with him. But did they find it then? Uh, they found a gun. Mm -hmm. They found a revolver in the toilet tank of the defendant's apartment. There was never any independent proof, you know, from paperwork or anything else to establish who bought it or if anyone bought it or right, where but, that came but from. But I'm confused because Mr. Vincent, the victim, yes, had a gun. Um, he had borrowed a shotgun in the past right, from the defendant. Right, but he didn't have he didn't have a gun on him at the time. Um, he did not have the shotgun on him, and the only evidence of a gun at all was the defendant's testimony. Okay, so it wasn't so, when he was uh, found. Uh, by he did him. not have a gun on he him. He did not have a gun yes. on him. Thank That's you. correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, as to the defendant's sentence in this case, he received an advisory sentence. Our case law says that when the defendant has received an advisory sentence, his burden to show that it was inappropriate is a particularly heavy burden. That's because the trial court has simply imposed kind of what the starting point is that the legislature has set out. Your colleagues suggest that the probation department mischaracterized his criminal history. Um, the sentencing statement that the judge issued, did it accurately reflect his criminal history, the juvenile adjudications, or at least the contacts with the court system and the, uh, uh, with the juvenile authorities? Mm -hmm. I believe, didn't the judge also say that there was no criminal history? Yes. Yeah, the trial court found that there was no criminal history. It noted that there had been just very minor ju juvenile involvement, but again, it, it didn't appear that the trial court put any great weight on 
that as an aggravating circumstance. What was the item, at least in the state's view, that the trial court placed the greatest weight on? Uh, I believe his conduct in the jail uh, was, was part of that. And uh, also his statement during sentencing that he lied at trial. He came in at sentencing and said, oh yeah, the story I told at trial, that wasn't true. It actually happened this other way. And when he said that, he attempted to blame his defense counsel for that. He attempted to say that his defense counsel had told him to make up the story. And so he was trying to deflect responsibility as well. I, I would note that he admitted to lying at trial, which although it was not reduced to a charge, that would be a felony charge, that would be perjury. So that the defendant basically admitted to committing perjury in his sentencing hearing, and the court found that he was trying to deflect responsibility or evade responsibility for it, as well as um, his conduct in jail. To what um, import is the fact that he has a number of mental health issues in terms of how we look at those aggravating circumstances? Uh, certainly, we want, uh, we're always concerned about mental health. That's, that's important. Um, but we've recognized that in, in order to, to, for this court to say, I think the trial court overstepped its bounds here, there has to be some uh, connection, some nexus between that mental health history and this event. For instance, if you had not this set of facts, but if you had a, somebody who was schizophrenic and believed that something was going on and they shot, then, then we might say, well, there was a connection between their mental illness and this event, even if it didn't rise to a defense. But in this case, there was never a showing of a true nexus between those well, issues. Could you not argue that the PTSD, given this person's history, um, had a very significant relationship? Um, that could be argued, yes. The trial court recognized his PTSD, so it's not like well, the, the trial court. You just said there wasn't a connection, and I'm saying, but it could, is there not a connection? There could be a connection, but at, at this stage, based on our standard of review and the deference we give to the trial court to make those decisions, the trial court was in the best place to have observed him during trial, what's his demeanor like, how's he reacting, uh, and those kinds of things. And I, and I think it's because the trial court did actually recognize it, I think we ought to give that some deference. Um, we, we certainly could sit here and speculate about what might have been, but actually as to what was demonstrated at trial, uh, I don't believe a, a connection was demonstrated. And it wasn't as part of their defense. Their defense was simply a self-defense. Yes, correct. So this is not like the case of, um, the recent case of Passarelli where they mm -hmm. talked about that. They did not raise that issue in this case. As to sentence, we uh, believe that the defendant has not met their heavy burden to show the compelling evidence that it was either inappropriate in light of the offense, which was brutal, given that he was shot from behind multiple times, uh, or based on his character, based on the fact that he lied at trial on his conduct in the jail. So the state is asking that you affirm his conviction and his advisory sentence. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. As it relates back to the sentence that Mr. Mueller was given at the conclusion of the trial, 
The trial court relied upon this pre-sentence investigation report. Um, it's noted in the record that there were significant incidents at the jail. It's also in the trial court sentencing statement that the incidents were significant. Um, believe the trial court relied on that very heavily. There, the, the IRAS that's present in, in the PSI uh, characterizes Mr. Mueller as a high risk to reoffend despite not having a criminal history. Let's um, assume everything you're arguing okay. is correct. We have this range of 45 to 65 years. Okay. The advisory sentence is the presumptive correct sentence. The judge in the end gave him the presumptively correct sentence, which is 55 years. He, if he gives him the 55 year sentence, he's not required, right, to issue a sentencing statement at all, right? Yes, Judge. All right, but he did. But obviously, it means, doesn't it mean nothing? Because he gave him the advisory sentence. And isn't that the presumptively correct sentence? And don't we just walk away? Assuming that the self-defense issue uh, wasn't here. Yes, uh, thank you, Judge. Uh, hopefully for- I'm sorry. Hopefully for Mr. Mueller's sake, we don't just walk away. Mr. Mueller was 26 years old at the time this happened. He was 28 years old when he was sentenced. Um, there's there's case law from, from this court in the Indiana Supreme Court that allows a, the sentence to be revised. It allows the defendant to have an opportunity to be rehabilitated, have some alternate placement on probation or community corrections. Let me ask a question about that. You know, our, our role as, an, as a reviewing court is to even out the outliers, he's gotten the advisory. The, the question that we also ask is not necessarily what we would do if we were faced with all of this same information, but did the trial court under the standard of, of 7B have a right to do what it did? Under the, the rules that we have, why should we um, reduce this sentence or make changes to it? Thank you, Judge. Uh, the reason this court should revise or make changes to this sentence is because this, is, um, this case is similar to a few uh, Supreme Court cases, Laster v. State, um, discussing how uh, an individual's young age, um, that an imprisoning a young offender for a long period of time might make them less susceptible to rehabilitation. Uh, this, the Supreme Court has reduced sentences in Knight v. State from 70 years to 40 years. The Supreme Court has reduced sentences in Tyler v. State, um, which included three, three sex offenses and an habitual offender enhancement, noting that at the time the defendant was 22 um, and later in life would have the, would have the ability to be rehabilitated. Uh, Mr. Mueller is 26 years old. No, no matter what happens to him, it's possible he's going to spend a large portion of his life uh, at the Department of Correction. He should be afforded an opportunity to have some of that uh, placed on community correction, supervised probation, allow him to transition back into society. And I believe, but for the uh, pre-sentence investigation report, uh, the, the, the trial court would have crafted a sentence, uh, sentencing statement uh, that, that would have suspended some of it. But when relying on the PSI and noting that putting mop water on the floor and putting a sticker on an inter intercom is a significant violation at the Howard County Jail, I think that's misleading the trial court as to, you know, his ability uh, uh, to be rehabilitated or his risk to reoffend someday. Um, education, financial history, uh, he had a high school diploma, he had a welding certificate, 
Yes, he was unemployed for the two years uh, prior to sentencing. That was due to his incarceration. They also listed his financial um, situation as being unstable. Again, an individual who's incarcerated for two years is, is likely going to have an unstable financial situation. Was that two years uh, waiting trial? Yes, Judge. Uh -huh. And the juvenile adjudications, there was a reference to their mainly hunting sort of Yes, there was. When he was 15 years and four months old, uh, there was what is listed as a hunting fishing regulation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no action taken, I believe, was the disposition in the PSI. That, that was it? There was a uh, battery and battery by bodily waste that if when he was 16 years and two months old that if committed by an adult would have been an A misdemeanor, B misdemeanor. Um, he was warned and released. So we don't, we don't know what that is. He was um, what? He was warned and released warned. Okay. Was, the, was the disposition. Okay. So the appellant today is asking um, for this court to revise the sentence. He, he's, his age is young enough. He's not beyond the, the scope of rehabilitation and to find um, uh, pursuant to other case law that he should have the opportunity to have some of that 55 year executed sentence suspended. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Counsel, Mr. Uh, Williver, Mr. Gregorski, it was very well uh, argued. We appreciate your advocacy and uh, thank you for being here today. We are in recess and we're going to move forward uh, and, and take questions from the audience and uh, give some special thanks to people who are here. Thank you.